Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, and I'm in the real-life edition. This is as real as it gets in this life. And I'm joined by the great Dr. Maria Gleemore. Dr. Gleemore is professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. She is the director of the PhD program, and she is an expert in causal inference, in cognitive dysfunction, Alzheimer's disease, and in many of the things that predispose one to that many years in advance. And she's also a very thoughtful person at the, at the intersection, I think, of epidemiology and human health. So, Dr. Gleamore, it's a pleasure to have you here on this podcast. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. It's actually quite surreal to see you when I'm used to listening to you, to like see, <laughs> see, the, uh, see the speech in real time. So. To see you face to face. I was just saying, it's been, it's been years since I've seen you, and that uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> shouldn't be years. We work together, but it has been years. I think it might even have been when I interviewed, actually, because it was, yeah, before Is I that joined. the last time I saw you in person? Yeah, I think so. Oh, that's pretty messed up. That's a long time well, ago. Well, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. So, so much has happened in between, I guess. Um, I don't know if you read the newspaper, but here this pandemic is coming. <laughs> I think something it's, got in between. Got messed up our plans. Yeah, it messed up our plans. I've also listened to you on many podcasts before, on the SER podcast, mm -hmm. and that's terrific. Mm -hmm. um, before we get into the issues I want to talk to you about, let me give listeners a little bit of a background, and you fill in the gaps. So you're from Oklahoma. I am from Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And you went to a great undergraduate college, the University of Chicago. Yep. And yep. what was your major at U of C? I was a biology major. I was I a biology see. major. I spent a lot of time pipetting, and this will date me, but I uh, tried to make transgenic mice. Wow. Now, uh -huh. pretty soon after I... I would really, it was not good for them, for the mice. Um, uh, they, that kind of thing gets outsourced, but at that time we still did it, did it in house. We tried to make transgenics and, um, yeah, so I was a bio major. And when you were a bio major, did you know epidemiology was in your future or what did you no, think? No, yeah. no, 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 no. University of Chicago at that time really, there, nobody introduced me to epidemiology. I had no idea. And, and I really struggled with what I wanted to do because, there was a sort of pressure on biology majors, like there's sort of an assumption that you would go to medical school. And I mm -hmm. didn't want to go to medical school. I knew I didn't want to go to medical school. And I worked in a lab for several years, long enough to know I didn't really love lab work. Mm -hmm. I love the science, like the science, the puzzles are mm -hmm. so much fun. Um, but I didn't love lab work. And then I was sort of at a loss for what to, what I wanted to do. And uh, it took me a while to, to find epi and find public health. I would say... I would say really public health is kind of where my heart is, mm -hmm. and and uh, it's just how do you approach public health if you're a geek? Like epi is a really good approach, you know, if like I wanna run regressions for social justice. That's, that's like <laughs> the, the hardcore. Yeah. yeah. But so then were, were, you, were you talented in math as a high school student, as a college student? No, I'm 
mediocre at math. Mediocre, really? Huh, yeah. But your work is, uh, okay. I'm very determined uh-huh. and I hate being confused. I see. Yes. So the combination of those is sort of results in some obsessive days thinking about regression models and so forth. But Actually, you know, that you, you kind of, you just mentioned that, but that's actually a, a great truth about research, which is if you yourself hate being confused, you can't do something and not really understand what's going on. Yeah. And that takes a lot of your time, but it also leads to a more better and more important finished product. I like to, that's, I like to think that, um, it, it, it does take a lot of time because I'll get stuck on a problem and just can't stop thinking about it until I've sort of solved it in my head some way. Do you think about problems when you go for a walk in the evening or you yeah, absolutely. find yourself in the shower yeah. or exercising, you're, th- you're thinking about the problem? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that I, I, when I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life and I was trying to find a job, I definitely wanted a job that I found interesting enough to think about when I wasn't at work. Mm-hmm. That, would be, that would be compelling. And I have. Between your undergraduate and the time you enrolled at Harvard to do your master's and then your PhD, mm-hmm. did you take time off in between? Oh, yeah. I went, um, I lived in Oregon and I lived in Portland and I worked in, um, I was actually trying to volunteer but I, I didn't have a job and I tried to volunteer someplace that was so, um, nobody would ever volunteer. I was just confused, I was just naive and so they offered me a job and since I didn't have a job, I, I felt like I had to take it. So the the place that I worked in Oregon was basically um, specialized in taking care of people with memory impairment and there mm-hmm. was a series of, of sort of, they call them adult foster homes mm-hmm. um, and so I worked in adult foster homes, adult daycares, I worked in a uh, locked memory unit um, in a nursing facility and that was, that work was amazing, and um, that that really helped me focus on on memory impairment and cognitive aging as a as a substantive focus. When I figured out that Epi was the strategy for me, that's fascinating. So, was that where your longstanding interest in in memory got started, or did it go even deeper than that? I think that's well. I mean, if, if I'm honest, you know, you write these applications for graduate school, and you write the application that you think will get you in. And so I, there were probably 27 topics in public health I could have written about and been totally excited about. You know, like I thought injury epi, what a fascinating problem, right. what an important problem, infectious disease epi, what could be sexier? But when I thought about like what, what actually makes sense that I can write my essay about, it's cognitive impairment, cognitive aging. And, and it, it is a really, I think, a very compelling problem. It really intersects with the social justice and social inequalities issues that are close to my heart. Um, and so it's, it's really been a topic that has been, that I actually wrote my, my grad school application essay on and, and to some extent has always motivated my career. And then how did you actually decide to apply for that program in epidemiology? I, um, what, what happened is that I was hanging out with my closest friend and she was a resident at MGH Mm. and, you know, if you hang out with the residents at MGH, like they all have their life together. Like they just know exactly what they're doing. At least it seems that and way. And they've known that <laughs> since like age seven, right? Like they're it just- It seems that way. And so at, at some something at some point, I heard somebody talking about this professor at, at Harvard who was working on um, some kind of public health thing. And I thought, that is so cool. It never even occurred to me you could do that. Mm. And so that really drew me towards towards thinking about about public health. It's fascinating. You know, you and I have spent time in the same cities then, Chicago, Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But then you went off to a city I've never lived in, which is Boston. You did your PhD there. What's but have, have you been to McAllister, Oklahoma? <laughs> I've missed McAllister, Oklahoma. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you've missed LaPorte, Indiana. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair point. <laughs> but I suspect McAllister, Oklahoma and LaPorte, Indiana, they may not be. They may be cousins. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe cousins. Um, then you went to the Harvard. You went to Harvard, and mm-hmm. you did your master's, and you did your your doctorate mm-hmm. at the Har- at the, the Harvard Epidemiology Program. That's a program that has quite a reputation. A reputation for methodologic rigor. So many seminal people have, uh, cur- well, currently are or have been associated with that department. Um, when you applied, uh, I see now in your career that you know very rigorous causal approaches to questions is what you're known for. Um, when you entered into that program, is that is that what drew you in? Is that why you went there, or? Oh, no. Okay. So first of all, I went into social epi. Okay. And so that one, the tweet that we were talking about, uh-huh. about that is based on my experience where, in fact, you could go into social epi and you could you could study social epi without doing really quantitatively rigorous work, or you could do really quantitatively. I mean, it, it's Harvard, so you can do whatever you want. Right. Um, and You chose it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I chose it. And I, I was really interested in this dissertation quest and this question of how education affects cognitive aging. And when I read all the literature, I could see there was a real causal inference problem. And I think anybody can see that. Like if you look at the literature, you're like there's a problem here if you find study after study after study show that education was associated with slower cognitive decline and lower risk of dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the classification criteria have changed over time, but th- that same story. And I was really worried about whether that was about education changing diagnoses or whether that was about the the factors that led somebody to, to pursue education, mm-hmm. also protecting them from from later cognitive aging and, and dementia risk. And because of that, I um, I was very interested in whether there were strategies to get around that. And I was at a I was at a holiday party with Ichiro Kawachi, and uh, Ichiro said, "You know, Maria." There's this thing economists do. It's called instrumental variables or something. You should you should check it out. I don't know what it is. You should check it out. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna go check it out. I'm gonna go learn. It's very earnest. Uh-huh. And uh, so that really and really at that time, instrumental variables methods, some version of instrumental variable methods were really bread and butter in economics and econometrics, but they were not at all bread and butter in epidemiology. Correct. And um, there were the sort of health policy people who came straight out of e- who really came out of econ traditions used them, but it was not part of my curriculum at all. It was not part of the core epi curriculum. It wasn't now probably in epi the place where people encounter the methods the most is Mendelian randomization methods. Mm. But at that time, that really wasn't popularized. Mm. Like that was that um, idea had not been um, spread, and so I like earnestly read. I took this class at the policy school from um, Sandy Jenks, who's just a totally brilliant inequality researcher. And he made us read all this econ and I studied. It was so hard. And uh, I I remember this this moment. I went to see Josh Angerist, who's this amazing um, economist who's really been an advocate for IV in, in, in labor economics. And he's a professor at MIT. And so I went over to Josh Angerist. I was like, okay, I've done my IV analysis. Can I talk to you about it? And there are two things that were hilarious that Josh said. First, he said, what is this dementia thing? Why are you working on that? I don't even know if that's a real thing. Why don't you work on institutionalization? That's something you can count. Oh, I see. Isn't okay. that interesting? Yes, right, right. That's how he immediately views it. Okay. Yeah. And I was, I was like, no, no, no. 
I really want to work on what's actually happening to people's brains. Wow. And the other thing that was really funny is I wasn't ready for him to say, okay, show me your code. Because faculty just hadn't been doing that with me at the right. School of Public Health. He was like, well, show me your code. And I pull out my code, which is SAS code. Uh-huh. And he looks at me and I've written out, if you know how, do you know how Ivy works? I, a little bit, but not, I'm not sure how it works in SAS. Okay, so there's, it's a canned procedure in SAS. It's okay. very standard. But I didn't know there was a canned procedure because nobody taught me. And okay. I was like, I was like, okay, I can do that with this regression and then this regression. Oh, I see. You built it out. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so Josh looked at it and he's like, Maria, there's a canned procedure. Why don't you use the canned procedure? It'll just be easier for you. You'll get the uh, same answer, but it'll be easier. Oh, I see. <laughs> so that's, that's my memory of Josh Angus. Um, but, but he took the interest and looked at the code. Oh, he's amazing. He was amazingly generous. Mm-hmm. He really was. Because um, I was like, who the hell was I? And what were you What were you examining as a factor as a predictor of dementia? Well, so I was interested in education. I see. And um, the IV method, the, uh, the example of instrumental variables that I found most plausible, there were actually two that I thought were worth examining, at least in my dissertation, only one of which I think sort of has stood the test of time. One was um, compulsory schooling laws. So compulsory schooling, the mandated number of years that somebody has to go to school mm, before right. they can drop out has right. changed over the course of right. the, the 20th century. It changed quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And it changed at different times in different states. I see. So, I see. so that's you, a nice little. Right. right. So you can see whether somebody born under a particular mandatory schooling regime had different risk of, of cognitive outcome, adverse cognitive outcomes in mm-hmm. late life. The other one is a little weirder, which is the month of birth. Because okay, the month yeah. of birth influences when you are eligible to start school, sure, and then put together with when you can drop out, it changes uh, the how long of time guarantee right. time in school. That's right. Oh yeah, I see. Okay, I would say that one has not stood the test of time because of seasonality effects. But I see that the the youngest kid in the classmates otherwise be different than the oldest kid in the other yeah, class. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, but the other one, the mandatory school duration changing, that's a nice yeah. nice thing to leverage. Absolutely. So then my understanding of your work, and tell me if I'm wrong, is you, in fact, do find that education does correlate with subsequent dementia, and it's not, and it is causal, i.e. that if you had gotten more, you are less likely to get dementia. Absolutely. And I think my result, I mean, in the United States, one of the challenges is that um, educational, mandatory education laws are not particularly enforced. Mm. So the effect of increasing one year of compulsory schooling, actually most people, it doesn't constrain their behavior. If you look in, so that was a challenge in my work, but we found a pretty large effect of an extra year of education that was induced by the extra um, by the laws uh, for those those fraction who were who was uh, behavior was constrained by it. If you look in Europe, you have like much much better enforcement, and, and so those results are pretty consistent for cognitive aging outcomes. They're pretty consistent that extra education induced by a mandatory law is is beneficial for cognition. To me, the thing that I worry about the most is whether what's happening is that education makes it hard to diagnose or that education is really helping people in a way that allows them to you know, maintain autonomy and have better quality of life as um, for longer. I and, see. and I think that's still, that's something IV is not getting around. Correct. And so that's still a problem with the or, overall or maybe literature. Or the third option, which is that education changes the way you live your life in some degree that affects... Your rate of dementia. That I would call a causal story. Right. That's and a causal, so that's, that's a totally causal, fine right. with me. That's fine with you. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that is the causal pathway, right? Yeah. Yeah. I you're mean, educated. You, your diet, your exercise, your eating, your social circles, your drinking, exactly. all different. And as a result. Exactly. You have exactly. Less dementia. Sure. That's all I say. And in fact, that's 
like as a social epidemiologist, that's why I think education is so of important course. is that it does trigger all of those pathways right. and it has so much potential as a, as a public health intervention. That's fascinating. So I guess this, I mean, we touched upon your thread and I, I'll ask you about it now, which is that, I mean, you approach this from the original vantage, which is that you want, you, you're interested in dementia how people's brains are working, not just the institutionalized patients, which is what um, the economist, of course, he likes to measure things. Yeah, yeah. And it's like very clean yeah. measurement. Um, but you're interested in this process and you thought it is possible, it is it is reasonable that education does have something to do with it, but you were dissatisfied with the studies that existed and you thought of this much more rigorous way to probe the question. And your thread kind of hinted at that because it was sort of, um, uh, it was advice for the junior person out there now mm -hmm. who may be impassioned by any number of social justice issues that abound these days, of which they are really important issues. And people, young people are right, I think, to care about a lot of these issues. And I think the way I read your thread, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was that you said, um, you know, it's almost like it's great to have those passions, but don't let anyone talk you out of very rigorous methods training. Because if you get that methods training that's really rigorous and you apply it to these same issues you care about, you're just going to be much more powerful as a scientist and much more powerful as an advocate, mm -hmm. um, you're nodding. So why don't you talk about this Absolutely. thread and, and why you feel this way? Well, um, so I, I was really prompted to write that because I was speaking with somebody who was uh, interested in the PhD program. I talked to lots of people mm. who are considering PhD programs and we talked very concretely about the skills that she had and I felt that she was really gonna struggle in the PhD program. Like people come into the PhD program with already pretty solid quantitative skills for mm. the most part. And I, I will say I am a quantitative researcher and so I will everything I'll talk about is, is mostly quantitative. I believe really strongly in the value of qualitative research and I think that that's, uh, I, I'll talk about the stuff I know but I don't, the qualitative researchers I think often get the short shrift and actually the insights that you can get from qualitative research are pretty amazing. Um, so those work best if they're hand in hand. But, but I think, for for epi PhD programs, people usually come in with pretty strong quantitative skills. And nobody had really told this person before, like these are the skills that you're gonna have to have to be competitive to get into a PhD program. Um, and even if you don't wanna go to a PhD program, like there are lots of other things you might wanna do with your MPH or your master's, these are, these are really skills that will help you. Um, if you're an advocate, it will help you disentangle what's kind of nonsense and fluff and from what's really useful to your community and a policy that would make a difference for your community. And if you want to get more training or you want to go work in industry, these are skills that are very valuable. And I think that there is there is a tendency um, it, it's 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 honestly easier to not teach people than to teach people. And so as a student, if you want to advocate for yourself, you should advocate to be taught. Like if you're going to pay a lot of money, and even if you're not paying money, if you're going to go to these master's programs, you're going to spend your time. Even if you're not paying tuition, you're, you, you have an opportunity cost because you're not right. working. Right. Um, so you should get taught, and you should get taught things that you can't, that are really difficult to learn by yourself. And yeah. That's, I think, is what I really like to hear. I mean, I think you're right. You're paying all this money. You're here, it's a moment in your life. You may not get it again and you should want to be taught, and um, you want to be taught the things that are hard to learn on your own. Yeah. And so what are things that I think are easy to learn on your own? It's easy to read about a period of history and learn a little bit more about it. It's easy to learn a little bit more about, you know, some disease process or something mm -hmm. like that. It's hard to have somebody walk you through, 
you know, if this was the kind of data set you had, how would you think through about kind of analyzing this question and how would you run that analysis right, and how would right, you code right. it right? Yeah. Although I want to say somebody responded to that Twitter thread and said, like I said, I basically agree, but the most valuable course I took at Harvard was a course in theory. And I don't, have you read Nancy Krieger? No, I have not, no. Okay, so, Na- so Nancy yeah. Krieger has this course that's a pretty formative course. It really is a brilliant course. Okay. And she is really an amazing theorist. And Nancy has a, has a complaint, a critique of Epi that it's all methods and that we don't teach people how to figure out what questions you should be asking. And in fact, I think for PhD students, that's one of the biggest challenges professionally is saying, what is an important question? What actually, of all the questions I could be asking, I agree. what is a really important question? And you can see that it's some, that's, that's an easier question maybe for clinical researchers often, um, but for for general public health people and for PhD students really saying, um, what would make a difference? What What is a question I can answer well? What is a question that actually could be influential? What is a question that somebody could use the evidence and to, to do something? Um, that's very hard. And that is, should grow out of theory and sort of, um, so. That's not always a methods que- the question. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. my fair, point. Fair, is, fair point. Is not that you should just go to school, so public health and only take regression models. Like Fair you, point. You, you should think about it. So it's funny you say that because actually, I don't know, when I talk to people, when I talk to trainees, I tell them like the most important thing I can teach you is like how to have a good idea. And what's a good idea? It's exactly the things you say, the intersecting Venn diagram yeah. of like, you've got this data set or you could build this data set. You've got this question. It has this applicability. The idea has not been beaten to death. It's a live idea. Um, and then you can think about it in an innovative way that other people haven't thought about. Yeah. It. And, and, and I also, uh, unfortunately, for better or worse, I always think about, well, if it turned out this way and if it turned out that way, where could it be? published and I let that all factor into my decision making, <laughs> which may not be good, but I actually look for ideas that no matter what it turned out to be, it'll be published well. Yeah. Whether it was this or whether it was that, it will be published well because people really kind of curious about this. Yeah. yeah. And and so you're right. And I have joked about like I wanted to create called a research shark tank where the class is people just pitch their ideas and mm-hmm. we talk about like whether that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I come back to your point, which is that I don't know, my, my first instinct, and the first time I'm hearing this, like maybe that's the most important thing you teach people. And I think maybe there's a, this person has a point, but my first instinct is that Nancy Krieger is probably a very gifted in-class teacher. I don't know her, mm-hmm. um, but I would imagine that would be the case. And I think there's some people, it's like almost um, the personality of the individual is they'd be really good at teaching that sort of class. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is I don't know if just anyone could teach such a class. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, but I do think that there are a lot of people who can teach you to be a good methods person. So I guess what, what I'm trying to say is mm. that like you could go to a program and you could be looking for such a class. And if you find it, I, I will commend you. But you may not get in every program. There might not be somebody who can teach you how to think about these ideas. Yeah. And some of us learn it the hard way, which is trial and error. Well, okay. So first of all, in another conversation, I'd love to talk to you about how to actually help people get better at this because okay, I think yeah, it is a really curious, valuable yeah. skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we just use the criterion, focus on classes that you couldn't learn the material independently very easily. Okay. Anyone who's tried to read Nancy's book would immediately want to enroll in her class. Because that would it would definitely <laughs> sure. meet that criterion. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> yes, and and it's it may be true that that Nancy is is, is really exceptional in her capacity as a, as a as an in class teacher. Um, but I, I think that there, I mean, same thing I would say for Sandy Jenks class, Sandy Jenks class totally changed the way I think about problems. Mm. And it was just incredibly challenging. What are the possible explanations here? Give up your cherished beliefs and look at the evidence. And, uh, that was really useful. Um, even though it wasn't technical, it was very difficult. <laughs> mm. 
what about, I mean, I guess what you're getting at is in, in your own personal question, like what if somebody cynical were to say like, um, why does it matter if the other studies were wrong about education? Like you did a better study to show education is important in dementia. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. But what did they say? Well, you know, these bad studies showed it was important too. <laughs> you know, they didn't say it wasn't important, right? But the, these suboptimal studies mm -hmm. showed it was important. So, you know, that's all we need to know. But, but you, you're willing to say that that's not enough. This is, so this is really, this comes up a lot in social epidemiology because people say, well, social inequalities are bad. Like that's not, you don't need much science to say the health inequalities we see are really shocking and, and wrong. Um, and, and that is, I absolutely agree with that. One thing I think that is important to recognize is that the, the injustice may be very, very obvious and very infuriating, but the solution is not obvious. Right. And, and I, I actually think a lot of harm is done by people who assume the solution is obvious. Right. And, and some solutions are well-established and we just need advocacy to, to right. implement them. But some solutions or things that people think are solutions, they're just wrong. And right. or once we really, just as with drugs, you know, there are people have strong beliefs that certain drugs just work right. and we shouldn't even try them in a trial because... Yeah, they're a parachute. Yeah. yeah. And, and yet we don't accept that because... That there, because we have so often been proven wrong, and so often been proven that we were harming people while we were assuming that we were right, we shouldn't accept that with social policies either. We shouldn't accept that with social determinants of health, um, except for the few parachute cases. We right. should really say we want to know what's working, and we want to acknowledge the possibility that these great-sounding ideas in the conference room might actually harm people when we implement them. And so we should make sure that there's a structure that we could figure that out. Um, and yeah, stop there. No, I guess uh, that's that's what I, that's how I feel about it, which is that you might be right. Your intuition was right that there's this injustice, but intuition doesn't get you to where to put the the where where to invest in the solution. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things that sound plausible may not actually do things, or may exacerbate, or may actually have unintended consequences you don't see, or or simply just be expenses and outlays yeah. uh, that don't work. And then the, one of the problems with outlays that don't work in a political environment is if you do things that don't work and your political opponents who didn't want to support those causes sniff out that they don't work but they cost a lot of money, they will beat you over the head with that and make it harder for you later to do the thing that does work. Yeah, yeah. I, th I, I think there really, there really is an opportunity cost to doing something that is useless or harmful. Um, and it's uh, there's always this this comparison, this thought experiment of like, what if you just gave the people the money? Right. Would that be Would that be better? And some economists have done such things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh yeah, we were just right. looking yeah. at universal basic income right. trials, yeah. which now are we're having really rigorous evidence on. Right. It's a it's fantastic. Um, I, one of the one thing I work on is this evidence for action group um, that's funded by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and we help recommend grants to fund. And so one of the things we'd love to do is take somebody who's going to have a really good idea, something really cool is going to happen and help them implement a rigorous evaluation so we get real evidence on whether it makes a difference. You know, it's really lovely to hear you talk about this topic, but I wonder if you might talk about one thing that plagues all of us as researchers, and I'm sure I'm as guilty of it as anyone else, which is how do you separate your own feelings about an issue from this kind of work? So if you work on social inequalities, people assume that you're not a scientist. Like a lot of people assume you're just you're just coming to the table with a set of beliefs that you're going to try to validate. 
And I think there is some um, public health work that is like that. And some of it actually, I, I think is fine. There, there's something, there's such a thing as, as advocacy that's Meaningful really advocacy, science. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so I don't have a problem with that. That's not what I aim to do because I'm working in areas where I think truly the answer is uncertain. The best solution is uncertain. Um, and I think that because of that possibility, for social inequalities workers, researchers, I think that the the onus is really strong to be true to the science. And um, I can say that from my own career, anybody who looks at my career can sh- see that I am not just finding the answer I want because <laughs> I so rarely find the answer I want. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but I think that that is a real pressure. And And one thing to do is before you ask questions, say, do you want to know the answer? Would you want to know either answer to this question? Correct. And if there's an answer that you really do not want to write the paper saying that, don't ask that question. Um, and some some questions are like that. Like, it really doesn't matter what I find here because this is just clearly wrong. And so mm. even if I find it doesn't harm this particular thing, sure. that's irrelevant. I see. Right. So don't of work course. on that. Right. Work on stuff that is like, if we if we show this, it could be useful. Right. Um, so. That's well put. You know, you put you you once attended a lecture I gave and it was about cancer drugs, which is far removed from this topic. And you ended and you said something that struck me, and I was thinking about it later, where you said, you know, uh, you said uh, you're secretly a social epi- a social epidemiologist. You told me, and I was thinking about it, and I think you're onto something because I am to some degree. That is my bias. What is my bias? My bias is I think we as a society. We see so often the final stages of some disease process, be it cancer, dementia, heart disease, you name it. And it's so easy to extract from society huge sums of money to battle this process. You know, we can take $500 billion for cancer. We'll suck that up. And who will oppose, who dares oppose me mm-hmm. with my $500 billion? And then it's almost like the Pentagon. I'm unaccountable for that money. <laughs> I, I spent $30,000 on a toilet seat. You know, like something, mm-hmm. you know, I spent mm-hmm. a. $50,000 on regorafenib for one month. I spent so much money. And so what I, so much of my work is like, w- this is unaccountable money. We're spending so much money. What are we getting for it? Does it really work? Does it help people as they really are? And then all these things. And your comment struck me because I am to some degree motivated by what you were saying, which is that if you took all that money and you invested in all these things that don't sound like medicine, like feeding young kids proper food when they go to uh-huh. school and you know investing in uh, education and having affordable college and, and real upward mobility, um, many of these problems would start to uh, cavitate and they'd collapse. Uh, maybe not all. Of course, there'll always be uh-huh. cancer, I think, I'm sure. Um, but uh, at least insofar as environmental and lifestyle and these things are huge drivers of it, that would be better. And that might be a better use of your money than the next quote unquote wonder drug, which is very marginal. And so when you said it to me, I feel like you you kind of read into my soul because I think it's a, it's a, it's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I wish that we had a more honest accounting for how resources are distributed. And But the, the fundamental fact of the world is powerless people don't have power yeah. by definition and they're not criticizing the way that we're spending money. Um, and so it's our job as researchers to say, to look at the big picture and try to say, we can have a bigger impact. We can make a bigger difference if we think about um, health resources like kids having enough to eat. Right. And I would say there's no question that's a health problem, right? Like yes. hungry children, that's a health problem. Um, and and there are lots of those where it seems like we, we are doing so badly and even so like some of the work I think is really fabulous is work evaluating SNAP programs. Like mm-hmm. what do you actually right. get from, mm-hmm. from investing in people being able to eat? Right. Um, yeah. 
And it's, I mean, this city is, I think, better than other cities about it, San Francisco. And it's better than when I was a kid. I was a kid in the 80s, and I remember, I know there were kids in my school who were like not having enough to eat. Yeah, yeah. But what I wanted to ask you about was that PhD program for a second. Um, I was talking to somebody recently, and this person was debating, this person had kind of a background, probably like so many people who approach you to discuss this issue. And actually, I think I actually told this person to, <laughs> you might get an email, just let's put it that way. Uh, I think I told this person to seek you out. But this person was like somebody who had, you know, undergrad science, maybe some MPH or master's in something, and had done some work in different sectors um, from, you know, consulting for a drug company to some public health work. Um, and this person was really wondering, like, well, what should I do next? Should I do a PhD in epidemiology? Mm -hmm. Should I do like regulatory law? Mm. Should I do medicine? And then I started mm -hmm. to tell them how many years. <laughs> they're like, oh, okay, let's just go back to the first two. Let's go back to the first. I was like, yeah, you drop a few years in that process. But, um, but I'm wondering, I guess, one, I guess people will be curious, what do you look for in an applicant? Who's the applicant that when you see their application, you get excited? Um, is it even one or multiple phenotypes? Uh, what do you advise someone thinking about doing this or mm -hmm. not? And uh, what has it been like directing this program? Um, let's see. So as an, about the applicants, um, EPI is, I think, a, an area where it's unusual in the need for both writing and communication skills and quantitative skills. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a we look for s people who have both so they can communicate ideas clearly and who have some quantitative background so we think that they can succeed in the, in the quantitative stuff. Um, PhD programs are hard, so we look for people who actually know what they're getting into and definitely want want that, like it's an informed uh -huh. decision. Um, a lot of people really don't know what EPI is, and so they're, what they really want is public health writ broad, writ broad or maybe uh, health behavior stuff, So, which is which is really is a really important domain, but not necessarily straight up epi. Um, there's some health behavior intersection, but it's not straight up epi. Um, so, so that's like somebody who has has the talent, knows that this is the right decision for them. And then for me, because I read a gazillion applications, I'm mm -hmm. so excited when somebody says something new. When somebody has a specific idea in their application that said that they say. I've been looking around. I've been in. I've been working in this adjacent field, and I've seen this thing that I don't know why they do it this way. I don't know why they think about it this way. I don't know why they don't use this idea. And I think that's a cool place to go. That to me is really exciting because that shows somebody who has a scientific mind and is going to be able to, even if they don't pursue that idea, which most people don't pursue the idea that's in their application, but they'll be able to do something really cool. Um, so that's a. That's kind of what we look for in applications. Do you pair them with mentors in your mind? You say like, yeah, this absolutely, oh, you do. absolutely. Okay. And and in a good application, there's enough information that I can I can see who the mentor might be. UCSF is so big. A lot of times, I don't know the right mentor. Um, but if if there's not a good mentor at an institution, you shouldn't go there for a PhD. Wow. There's just nothing more important than the mentor. And because there's so much apprenticeship, it's way more important than coursework, right? There's so much apprenticeship. And so... Uh, and how much is the content of the work what matters? And how much is the personality of the mentor what matters? Both. You have to have both. You really, like an ideal mentor is so excited to see your work. They're like, come on in, show me those results. I want to see those results. I want to know what you found. And and you're actually happy to talk to them. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and those are like chemistry is a little unpredictable. But I really encourage people to to gossip with other students about who's good to work with and who's fun um, and uh, re really look for both both things. 
sort of unlike a lot of fields or is it like a lot of fields actually i don't know the answer to this question in the sense that um one of the stereotypes about some fields is that the brilliant people are unpleasant to work with and the brill and then the the other you know but uh epi i feel like is not a field like that the brilliant people are often also very pleasant to work with yeah absolutely no comments about oncology. <laughs> <laughs> no comments. No comments. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that. Um, trying to phrase this politically, yes. uh, I have been very lucky to work with people who made respect and kindness a core aspect of the community they built, and I have noticed that people build those communities in spite of what is happening. In, often at a larger scale. And it is really, I consider that part of my role as a program director, not that I always succeed, but I try my best to make sure that there are norms of respect and caring and we're in this together because we're here for public health. Like we're right. we're not here to- I think that's part of why. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, it's very, it's academia, it's competitive. There are definitely settings that are, where people are very stressed out. I have, there have been times in my career where I was like, I really shouldn't have phrased it that way. I was a little too stressed out when I talked to that student. Mm -hmm. And I know that that happens in a lot of settings. So I think you just want to be cautious about putting yourself, students are very vulnerable. And so you really want to be in a place where you have an advocate and where there's a real, there are strong protections to make sure that students are treated well. How many PhD students do you take each year? Oh, it varies a lot. It's 10 this year, and it's uh, very that's a very large class for us, so yeah. we are a little daunted by 10. It, it, they were just really, really good. So um, so that's it, usually it's more like five, five or six. So, What's the constraint? Budget? Um, Resource? Teaching? Yeah. It is not budget, per se. Uh, so without getting into the yeah, the secrets. The fine. No, no. I, <laughs> okay. I actually try to be totally transparent. Okay, okay. If anybody wants to know about my budget, I am totally transparent because I just think people should know. Like, you know, if if PhD programs are expensive, and if we care, if we think that this is an important skill set, we need to support these these students in this and this endeavor. Um, but but generally, there are costs directly related to students that are per student, and then there are costs that are about functioning as a as a program, like having faculty teach and having administrative support. And then there are costs that are not actually line itemed, but they are our capacity to make sure that each of our students is doing okay. Mm -hmm. And um, the per student costs are actually at UCSF pretty manageable because the students do research with faculty and mm -hmm. so those are they they have really great skills the faculty are usually really thrilled to work with them right so that that usually works out now one of the things about this field that i don't know is the tough thing when you think about it is in some ways i feel like it's like goldman sachs okay <laughs> oh, i'm gonna try to connect that to <laughs> yeah. you how's this like goldman sachs in these investment banks, they got a lot of people who start at the entry level, but they're not a lot of people in the C-suite. And when you look at academics, especially soft money departments like epidemiology, it feels that way. It feels like there's attrition all along the way. And I know there's some studies about the the, the, the pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to be, you know, you're, you're a full professor. It's, it's hard to be a full professor. That means many years, I actually, I, it's been a while, so, I mean, I don't know exactly, but you've had grant support for many, many years. Mm -hmm and a publication record for many, many years. And I would say um, it feels as if for every 100 people who embark on a PhD program, 
maybe only five end up full profession. I don't know. What are the actual numbers? Maybe you know the numbers. I I don't know the numbers. Maybe Goldman Sachs better than us. <laughs> I w- well, I think that's the I think that's uh-huh. the wrong framework. Okay, good. That's what I wanted. That's um, what I was gonna ask you. The r- and I I think it's I I really object to it because yes, um, my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that the, that often um, Epi is lumped in with with basic science okay. in general with yes. other and and Epi is kind that's of bridging true. right sure like social science by basic science and so Epi is often lumped in with basic science and where it is really attrition. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's right. And and I think, and I think there's, um, so when when I started graduate school, I thought, I don't know if I want an academic career. That sounds like a drag. I want to chew. I want to study something that I can have other jobs. And there are a lot of jobs in public health that I would be excited to have. I see. And my the program's goal is that certainly we hope to to train some people who are top tier academic researchers at top tier research institutions but we also hope to train some people who are making government effective and doing public health work at the government level we are delighted to train some people who end up going into industry and do work in industry that that is important work and um i think that has been so vindicated in the pandemic you know when you think about who's in government what are those what what are the what is the training that those people are getting we should be training folks those are those are really critical roles those are fantastic scientists and we want the best scientists there and we shouldn't think of this as like oh well if you can't be a professor you can go you know actually fight the global pandemic <laughs> um, it so um and i think that if you one of the challenges is figuring out what students really want mm-hmm. um but i think if students are Honest, some of them really do want academic careers, but some of them don't. They just don't. They look at your life and they're like, I can see that you are thinking about your problems all the time and I don't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> um, or they they really would like to spend, do more applied work and so forth. So I think for Epi, the range of jobs that are very successful outcomes is much larger. Mm-hmm. And um, I love that. I think that's fantastic and I'm really proud of where my students end up going and that they they are doing a diversity of things so I guess you'd summarize by saying don't let the fact that not everyone is a professor dissuade you from doing something where there are many things you can do with this skill set that were wonderful absolutely absolutely okay then my question follow-up but then why is it such a pain in the butt to get all this soft money the soft money is a real (laughs) (laughs) it is a pain you uh-huh. must acknowledge this. Oh, yes. Soft money disaster. Yes. So, but wait, what's, I don't understand the link between maybe you don't want to be an act, like. No, I guess that, I have no link. I guess I have no link. I just wanted, I, I just want maybe have you to talk about the second part, which is that, um, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll say my bias and then mm-hmm. you, you can just react to my bias. My bias is that, um, Yes, it's competitive. Yes, it should be competitive. I think I actually disagree that it it shouldn't be competitive. Um, but I do think to some degree, the ways in which we make it competitive, the ways in which we, we make it competitive in soft money academic departments, um, actually discourage a lot of really innovative thinking. Hmm. Because we are so much of our time increasingly is obliged to... Um, you know, write grants and pursue grants. And so many really talented people, I think are really innovative, are kind of pushed out of the academy, I guess. And I think that they do have something to add. And I wish there were different reimbursement models or things like that. I definitely agree with that. Um, it's clear that that 
having an entirely soft money structure is is a warped system. Um, I don't see some solutions would clearly improve, like just having more money where everybody had some level of hard money. That's absolutely. what I think, right. Um, a certain floor. Yeah, yeah. but the, the task of really evaluating science at a group level is incredibly hard. Like the peer review system doesn't work great, but it's there's not really a, a better alternative. Um, right. It's the worst form of government except for yeah. all the others. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. And uh, the other thing I'll say about soft money environments is they do really make people hustle. For better or worse, mm -hmm. they make people hustle. And uh, like at, at Harvard, there was a kind of a joke. I had a joke with a colleague about you could really tell when you were meeting with somebody from the other side of campus because they had hard money and like the meeting could go on. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're like, we got to write grants, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we got to wrap this up. So so it, it's... Uh, I think you're right. I mean, I agree. It makes you hustle. And um, I don't know. I do think that there's something about this type of work that makes you hustle. And, um, you know, I just saw recently that because of the pandemic, um, the university has announced that they're going to, uh, like take it easy on us when we go for promotion, et cetera. And, um, so, so they say, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so they say, right. Um, but and they're I, really going to count service as well. Absolutely. Yeah. For the that first time. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess what I, one of the things, my first thought was that, um, you know, it's, 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 um, they can say that. But at the end of the day, it's always, people are always kind of judged against their peer group. And if the peer group is hustling, you better be hustling until you can stay in the same place. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I think we, one thing we can do, I think, is we can do a better job of counting what people are contributing. Okay. And so like, this is a place where I think the inequalities, racial ethnic inequalities in faculty and um, promotion processes and grant success, I think that we can we can do a better job of evaluating what people are actually contributing. So one thing um, that I could see really clearly at Harvard is there are some faculty who spend a lot of time investing in students and some faculty who don't. And from a strictly strategic promotion right. strategy, it's better not right, to. Right, because you right? don't get any credit for that. That's right. right. Um, but from a, what is actually your vision of your role in the world. And a human being strategy. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but that was a, that's a failure about how we evaluate faculty. Right. And that's fixable. And I think that, that that plays out in lots of ways that, that in particular harm minority faculty um, because I think they do so such disproportionate mentoring. Um, so, so we, we can improve the system even within the larger context, but, but I am really worried we're going to get through this whole time and not talk about Agilehelm. Let's do it. And let's do it. It's going to break my heart if we, we can't talk about Agilehelm. We've got 15 minutes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is the most important thing. Um, I was building up to it. So okay. I'll tell okay. okay. I, I well, maybe you I, had a better segue. I was no, I was going to get there, but I think it's important. Okay, so what, what, what do I know about Educanum Evan? I want to hear what you have to say about Educanum Evan. You know, you're somebody who's been working in this space for a long time, so naturally it's going to get your interest. Um, and of course, uh, listeners, the brief summary, of course, this is, um, uh, this is the Biogen pharmaceutical drug. Uh, antibody, two randomized control trials, one stone cold negative, the other one actually also negative, but in a post hoc analysis of a certain dose, maybe there's uh, some signal there, but it's also likely spurious. Um, and it does actually affect, I think, one endpoint. I don't even want to call it an intermediary endpoint because I don't think we really know that to be true, which is amyloid plaque deposition in the brain. Yep. Um, and one of the challenges is 
And uh, I guess we could talk about the thing that you wrote, which I thought was so brilliant. But one of the challenges is, of course, Medicare is about to be obliterated by this drug. Um, I don't see a clear path. We will find out if they find a way to escape paying for this drug. Um, the VA is trying to slip out of it. But if they if they cannot escape this drug, even with one-third market penetration of the 6 million patients with Alzheimer's, we're talking about an annual outlay of $100 billion a year. You know, it's just going to crush Medicare. It's just going to dwarf Part B spending. And if you have... And it's not the only one. We got Eli Lilly. He's got to get, got their little knockoff uh, Me Too drug is coming soon. Um, and the paper you wrote, which is really interesting, is about um, you know if we accept the fact that we don't know for sure this drug helps Alzheimer's patients live longer, live better, but we also accept the fact that we are obligated to unveil this drug in some manner. Is there a way we can do both things: unveil the drug and learn something about the drug? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why don't you jump in there? So. I have so I have a lot to I have a lot of opinions about this. So so the original thing that I I think you're referring to was if they're going to roll out this drug. Well, so the FDA said, well, you have to have a post approval study, and they required a post approval study to be completed by 2030, which I thought was is outrageous that we have a drug on the market that's incredibly expensive, maybe harming people um, for nine years with no better evidence. And I will say, from on a personal perspective, I am very interested in knowing whether this drug is useful or not. Mm -hmm. And I would say right now, the weight of the evidence is probably not, but I it's not certain it's not. Um, So the idea is we could randomly stagger the rollout. So especially if there's a limited access to the, like there's not actually enough, there's a manufacturing pipeline delay, you could simply randomly stagger which sites rolled out the drug and started when they started treating patients. And if you did that, you could design it such that in a couple years, you would actually know if the drug was, you would have pretty good evidence. Mm-hmm. And that really looks like a pragmatic study design, like a um, stepped wedge design. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of variations on this. Like the, once you start thinking about ways to build randomization into, into this kind of uh, rollout, there are lots of options. And we just have to be willing to do it. We have to say, it's super important that we find this out. And we shouldn't be treating people without knowing if this drug is net on net harmful or helpful. And um, so so there, the stepped wedge trial approach is one possibility. There are lots of other strategies that, that would essentially randomly assign or quasi-randomly assign people the timing of the medication and would allow us to learn faster. The, uh, one other thing about this medication that I want to say that's really um, su- just disturbing that I hadn't, as a social epidemiologist, I really hadn't followed the pharma stuff super closely, but um, the, the original trials, they... Uh, I'd always heard, oh, there's low participation of uh, racial ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. I hadn't realized how low. Like, right. if you were going to guess, do you know? I think I do know. Okay. That's what, 3% black in this study? Less than that? Mm-hmm. Oh, really? So um, I think there were 19 black people in both studies. In the, oh, the, oh, gosh, the whole and thing. And okay. of those, of course, some of them were randomized to placebo or low-dose groups. So six people who identified as African-American or black received the dose that was approved by the FDA. Oh wow! So, why is that acceptable? Like, it's it's it seems really shocking to me. If there's a story about how sort of embodiment of race may actually make people more vulnerable to the adverse side effects, so if there's interaction between race and what this drug does, either benefit or harm, you don't see that at all when you only got six people. No, you couldn't right. possibly tell. Couldn't possibly tell. Right. right? Like even even core safety things, right. we couldn't really know about this this medication. Right. And this is medication that causes microhemorrhages. That is. You know, it's plausible to think that a population with an excess burden of stroke and hypertension might be differentially harmed. So it's worth worrying about. Yeah, I guess I somehow I thought I saw somebody say that was 3%, but it's even worse than that. Okay. Um, 
I knew it wasn't good. <laughs> it, may have been, it may have been 3% no, non-white. Uh, uh, I say non-white. Okay. Or 3%. Yeah. Something. But something, but obviously not reflective of U.S. demographics. Um, it's not good. I think, uh, and we just published a paper this week with uh, Christina Jani and I in Jam Oncology where we looked at 20 years of trials and women participation in cancer. And of course, there are actually some cancers that um, you don't think about, but they do have a female predominance such as like mm-hmm. uh, thyroid cancer. And we found even there, there's like more men in the study. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. I was like, wow. you're like going out of your way to not exclude women. That's... Okay. Um, but you know, as your point is well taken, which is, oh, and we have another paper looking at this, like, do you have enough data to do an interactions um, analysis? Right. Um, and I, I can't say it because it's under review, but uh, w- probably not. I'm just going to yeah, guess yeah, that you yeah, found yeah, no. Yeah, I, right. Without you, don't, don't confirm or deny. <laughs> no. But I'm just going to guess that the answer is no, they are not powered (laughs) adequately to evaluate differential effects. I'm good at guessing. Um, uh, The other thing about oncology, actually, um, although these issues are very important, in addition to these important issues, now we've got these new, like, um, what we call these tissue agnostic approvals, which means that if you have a certain genetic mutation, no matter what tumor it arose Mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. you get the approval. And they've approved some based on so few people that it's literally approved for cancers, where there was no one with that cancer and that mutation who were on the study. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, amazing. So, literally no data. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's all excellent points. I mean, the one thing about the step wedge that I thought was really clever and uh, about it was um, it kind of satisfies a lot of people. Like we've already seen, I believe, NYU and Cleveland Clinic, and they said, we're not going to offer this service. Mm-hmm. Um suggesting that in the city of Cleveland, there's probably some equipoise about who's going to do it and not to right, do it. Right. And it's like, all you need to do is get together and we'll randomly exactly. choose. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. If if the field is this conflicted, we could do this if we just agree that we're going to randomly assign. And uh, the, the, I, I think there's some hope that the ambiguity, the uncertainty about CMS funding approval yeah. might push Biogen to agree to some sort of more rigorous and faster evaluation. Um, but I hope people are really angry about this and, and insist on the evidence. One of the more disappointing things to me was that the Alzheimer's Association has really supported the medication. Um, and I, I think that's a disservice to patients. I think that the Alzheimer's Association, I think that patient advocates should be insisting on good evidence on whether this drug is helpful or harmful, not just insisting on access to the drug or approval of the drug. Um, so I, I wish that there was more outcry from patient advocates and clinicians. And there is a, there is a fair amount, so. I guess more than I've ever seen, which is what got my t- interest. Um, but I agree with you. Now you're coming into my wheelhouse because I've been in this place for a long time, which is that um, a couple things that I think are interesting to me. One, imagine what you and people who study the issues that you study could do without $100 billion with like, one, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely, right? <laughs> absolutely. When you think about, so their their price tag is $56,000. Per person per year. Per And that's just the infusion. Yeah, not the, the hospital costs and all so that stuff. We just say to people, what would, would you like the $56,000 or would you like this pointless drug? And let them choose. And I... I think people, a lot of people would be choosing the $56,000. So there is actually a guy at Hopkins who many years ago, I think this is Tom Smith, um, and uh, we tried to email him about this. He actually did have a study where people with like terminal cancer would either get um, some portion of the cash of the cost of these drugs or these very marginal drugs. Um, but, um, you know, he ran into all the uh, many problems along the way. That yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can imagine. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, so that's one point I think that's really important to make. And the other point I think is that this ecosystem around advocacy 
Um, you know, you talked about the advocacy in the trainees, which is often the most pure advocacy I see because I think it truly is pure and motivated by the, the cause. But so much of the advocacy when it comes to drug product advocacy has been increasingly tainted. Um, and in my space, uh, you know, we did a study a few years ago where we found 65% of cancer groups that were recommended in, in sort of this popular data set um, took significant chunks of money from the industry. In fact, it, many likely it is their predominant source of revenue. And in some ways, they are outspoken, which is they're always calling for more options sooner. But sometimes there's a disservice because sometimes what you need is more evidence. And the other thing, ironically, is very few of them were calling for lower prices of the products once they're approved. Right. And there's another drug, this Exondus 57 or Sereptor mm -hmm. Pharmaceutical, that they put a lot of pressure on them to approve. But it is a troublesome, I guess I'm kind of, I have mixed feelings about it. I think it's a terrible drug approval. I wouldn't have approved it. But the one silver lining is that actually a lot of people have come out of the woodwork to say that it's a problem and that yeah. we need to rethink yeah. this system. That's true. And the Alzheimer's Association has certainly condemned the price point. Like they mm -hmm. have certainly come out against the price point. I am. Um, I think that there probably is some financial conflict of interest issues related to the big picture story. Um, I my guess is that with the Alzheimer's Association, it's much more about intellectual conflict. They just really want it right. to be true, right. and, um, and they've invested a lot in the amyloid hypothesis as an intellectual yeah. pursuit. Yeah. yeah, and you have to be sympathetic for a group of patients who for Absolutely. many years there's not been a new drug. Absolutely. No, and so I think that those are I think that those are good faith disagreements. Uh, uh, so I think the answer is we really need structures that can give us evidence more quickly. Well, that's um, that's where you and I agree so much because I actually think um I don't know. If I were to say like a, a hundred years from now when people look back on our society, they'll see a lot of strengths and weaknesses, but I think the weakness was that we lived in an age where we knew that this evidence is important. Mm -hmm. Maybe 200 years ago, I don't think they knew. You know, okay, I mean, fair, fair, yes. Right? Yeah. We're living at a time where we know. Like, yes. you, you know, I don't think, uh, no one should dispute the fact that your step wedge design could give useful information. We know yes. that that's possible. And yes. yet we still don't do it. That's what gets me about this society. And I have all my own little soapbox issues that I always get fired up <laughs> about <laughs> issues where we could do something to sort but this out. That's yeah. true in general, though. There, yeah. there are just countless policies where we just don't have good evidence. And it's, it's definitely ambiguous what is the right strategy. And we could do better. Part of that, I, I really think people don't understand how many options there are for designs that are not like classic randomized yes. control trials. Yes. And that's like... Now I'm back to my soapbox about quasi-experiments. Like right. I think we actually can create quasi-experiments in a lot of settings that seem like you couldn't do a randomized control trial, but you can get very high-quality randomized evidence if you just think about the structure a little bit more. And, um, and part, I, part of that is that people don't know how things are actually operationalized. And if you see how it's operationalized, you immediately see that, wow, just a little perturbation and yes, it's giving you information. Yes. One, one thing I think people believe that you have to have 100% adherence or very high adherence uh, to a, the randomized. Right. And in fact... Like one of that's a, that's an advantage of the statistical method is the statistical method can solve that problem even if you have mediocre or um, adherence to the randomization you can still learn a lot. And um, my argument there is uh, some interventions like aducanumab I think adherence is a factor but with enough sample size you'll overcome that. But for some interventions where the intervention is a policy proscription or recommendation, absolutely adherence you own the adherence. Yeah, absolutely, you own absolutely. it. I mean, if I told you my breakthrough diet was don't eat any food anymore, and then yep. you come back two months later and you said I <laughs> couldn't adhere to your diet. I, I can't say, well, you know, it's your fault, I told you. That's <laughs> you know, right. It's just not a good That's diet. Right. Um, 
But you know, I I think that that is that's a good that's an excellent point um, about why we get into these protracted debates. And I think that there's one other point that I'll add to it, which is that um, when you've been around the block a lot, you see a lot of these things that seemed very promising or plausible that didn't work out. Yeah. And when yeah. when you're not around the block a lot, you feel like I don't know. There's a certain aura about science and aducanumab monoclonal antibody. That, well, that sounds good to me. And it goes in the brain and it finds this amyloid. Reduces and, the amyloid. Yeah, it, like, so that's pl- great. Plucks right? it out. Yeah. We've got a biomarker. Yeah. We've shown the biomarker is improved. And a pet amyloid. I don't think I've ever seen one, but I suspect it's like any pet so amazing to look at. Like mm-hmm. it looks beautiful and mm-hmm. now it's all better looking. Um, it's easy to be seduced by this mechanistic stuff. Um, yeah. And I yeah. think we, we still succumb to it. And I also think that like these things trick us. I'm holding up my phone. Why does this trick us? Like... The human body, I don't know, I think a lot of people analogize the human body from technology. And mm-hmm. so with technology, like, I don't think we can, there's no dispute that that television on the wall is better than the TV I grew up with. And this phone in my pocket is better than the phone I had 20 years ago. Yeah. Does all these things I didn't even know I wanted and I, maybe I still don't want. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and so similarly, I think we think that every new drug in the medicine world, surely that's doing to the brain uh, what iPhone 12 does versus flip phone. Right, right. I I was probably, my perspective on this, my pessimism is probably influenced by the fact that I was training when the trials for um, postmenopausal hormone oh, therapy WHI. came out. Yeah. So so those were so disappointing and, and really challenged the observational evidence. And it's my understanding that when they wanted to do trials in the early 90s, when they were launching those trials, Lots of people said we shouldn't have trials. Correct. We know this works. It's it's unethical to randomize women to to control here, and um, so I think that my level of humility about like yeah you your biological theory sounds really great we need a trial um, is is influenced by those sort of spectacular failures. And um, if you haven't seen those spectacular failures, it's easier to believe we have a good biological story. Maybe yeah. it's true. <laughs> If you haven't seen them, I recommend a book called Ending Medical Reversal, where you try to <laughs> <laughs> shameless book plug. Um, yeah, that's a great example. And that's also like such a great story because um, there was the NHS study by Stanford and colleagues, who I think was a Harvard faculty and still is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the, there's a resistance to do WHI, mm-hmm. which is a multi-arm randomized control trial. Since doing it, I think there's still a little dispute about whether or not you can use hormone replacement in the short term around menopause without some of the long-term consequences. Yep, yep. And then there's the great work by Miguel, uh, who kind of tried Hernan. to, mm-hmm. yeah, Hernan, who tried to, I think, and I think he plausibly did offer an explanation why yeah, they differ. Absolutely, right. absolutely. And I, I wish, I, I think that that work, Miguel's work was so important in part because had that work been available prior to planning the trials, maybe we could have approached the trials differently. Right. Um, but it wasn't, right? So we didn't have that understanding prior to the trials, but it would have been really useful when they were planning the trials too. And I think the whole field has learned a lot from from that finding and um, from, from Miguel's sort of vision of emulated trial designs. And I think, um, yeah, I keep a little folder of... Um trials that people said were unethical to do because you're randomized people to placebo where the intervention had more deaths. <laughs> I can't, yeah. My folder is great getting plump by the plumper by the day. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. It reminds me of, you know, now they had this new study on Israel comparing myocarditis post-vaccine to myocarditis um, after infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, you haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. It uses a lot. It's leveraging a lot of these things. Um, but the only things that I think are that I want, and maybe I'm going to write a letter, 
One is to ask for in the subgroup of men between the age of 16 and 24 to pull that out. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, is like they use, um, it's like an Israeli insurance database. Mm -hmm. So they have really good, I think, endpoint ascertainment Mm -hmm. of myocarditis. Uh, But they're comparing people who got the vaccine, which you know the exposure with like 100% certainty Mm -hmm. versus people who are infected. But the problem with the infected group is it's people who are like diagnosed with COVID, which misses some people who were infected, but never never diagnosed. And so I think there's need some correction for like comparing the case versus yep. infection yeah. rate. Um, but anyway, I'll push them on that. You could have a resample them. Like they could just resample. Resample a group and then just do mm-hmm. antibody tests and mm-hmm. see what the seroprevalence, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. That would make me happy. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but I guess, okay, so to, to tie all these topics together, because I know our time is up and you're going to have to go to your meeting. Um, I think, you know, your work is really interesting. I'm always interested. I was interested by, by it long before. Um, and I think it's because it's, because it's always... It's got the the rock solid methods. Okay, this is what I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Okay. We never got to BMI, by the way. I know. I was going to ask you about BMI. Oh, wow. Maybe we'll come to it. Maybe this uh-huh. question will allow you to answer it. I mean, how does it feel to be? I guess I'm kind of really curious how this feels for you. Which is, you're somebody who's a very thoughtful person about trying to link these things that people want to link: BMI, Alzheimer's, education, Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some of these diseases, there's so many people in this space who uh, they, they may have a passion for the disease and they may have stata, but they don't think so thoughtfully about their methods. And I often see this in my field, oncology, where it's like, I'm like, how many people are really interested in like double hit lymphoma? And it's like, I don't know, we could probably fit them in this room. They're not that many. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are like running all these regressions about like, which is the best treatment mm-hmm. and like, who should you give it to? Mm-hmm. And these are decisions that are like seriously important decisions. There's not a randomized study. There's not probably not going to be because the sample size is small and there's just only so much money for so many randomized studies. Um, and yet they're drawing like strong conclusions, like for people with this mutation, they need to get dose adjusted RE, they need to get some high right. ad- aggressive right. chemo, right? And I would feel a little bit better if somebody on that research team was you, you know, somebody with the methods background to think about, you know, the model, think about the DAG, to think about confounding and time zero problems. Um, but they don't have that person on the team. Mm-hmm. It's often somebody like me, a doctor who's been given too much stata, <laughs> who's been given a, a full license to stata, don't know what he's got, <laughs> you know, like opening Pandora's box. Um, so I guess my question to you is, um, it must be a pleasure to see epidemiology done well, but what is it like to see epidemiology done poorly? Um, how do you think about that? And to know that probably the majority of these kinds of papers are poorly done. I um, part of that's part of what I think is fun about being at UCSF. I think that we need more partnerships with people who think about study design and study analysis, uh, and people who think deeply about specific diseases and know the biology and. Those kinds of partnerships, I think, are essential. It's a little appalling to me how how minimal the statistics and study design training that's required for clinical training is. Like p- some people really go above and beyond, and it's clear that that's because they care about the science. Because as far as I can tell, you can be an MD and have no training at all and get a full license to data and publish. Uh, so so the people who go above and beyond and say, "No, I really want the training to to think about these these methods." I treasure those people. Um, uh, so the, but, but also that's why I spend a lot of, I've invested a lot of time in training. I think that, that we really need to make those tools available to people and help people understand, first of all, recognize when they need, when they're, when they should be worried, um, which I spend 
like a lot of my time worried about the design and methods, but but help people recognize when they should be worried and recognize when there might be a better tool or how to even interpret the ambiguity in their results. And so we have, like we started the Methods and Longitudinal Research on Dementia group, Melodem, which is totally about connecting the community of people doing research, which is so diverse with neurologists, neuropsychologists, epidemiologists, neuropathologists, connecting those people with some of the tools of to, to do more rigorous research. Um, I also, we just finished a data workshop that's called the Advanced Methods, Psychometric Methods in Aging. It was all about uh, transport methods, which I want to talk to you about someday. Okay, um, I want to learn. They're tools, it's tools for taking information from these specialized populations, for example, trial populations or clinical populations where you have really good neuroimaging and generalizing out to general populations and like rigorous tools to do that really systematically. And so we just had a workshop where we spent a week with people playing with data and trying to trying out these tools. And I think that stuff is really important and uh, it needs to be ongoing because it, the tools change and evolve. Um, and I don't, I don't want to leave this as if it's like a clinician, non-clinician divide no, because you can certainly do, I mean, I've done plenty of dumb epi myself and, and like you can just do epi that you don't really realize the mistake you've made until years later and you reread that paper and kind of cringe. But, but I do think that we need to give people skills to think about um, study, des- really study design as much as analysis because people learn the stats and they, they even now they're learning to doubt p-value to think about p-values in a different right. way but the but the issues of design like how do you think about design to really rule in or out specific competing hypotheses that i think we still don't teach and people don't necessarily realize how important it is that's really well said and i think people will benefit from some of these courses i always think that like you know if you're a doctor or you're a practitioner primarily and you're in a situation where there's one of several things that doctors do and you're trying to figure out and argue for what's the best mm-hmm. You need some help because it's those are the that's really hard mm-hmm. in an observational data set where the reason they're doing it is often influenced by what they're seeing and what they're not documenting and um, it's it's really hard I think and I think it's it's a mistake to think I think that's might even be it's easier to run a randomized trial so, I mean I hate to say it but sometimes like you don't need to know that much to be <laughs> to be the person accruing on a randomized study somebody has the protocol you're following the patient you know that's straightforward but to do retrospective causal claims about efficacies of therapeutics that are not given to people equally and that have strong socioeconomic and patient level biases and time varying biases. Yeah, yep. It's not easy. Okay, so I have, I have a question for you. Okay. So how, um, how do you think, if at all, the evidence from observational studies should influence your priors when you run a randomized trial? Like, should you say, I've learned nothing from the observational studies? I just have... No. Or should you say, you know, the observational studies make me think it's pretty likely this is beneficial, and so I'm going to change my criterion before I conclude that it's beneficial based on the trial? I guess I would say I think there's, it's super important, and I think it'll help you in several ways. One, it gives you a ballpark therapeutic effect, which will help your power calculation. Okay. And we see over and over again, one of the biggest problems in trials these days is people, um, they always say, uh, the event rate is lower than anticipated. Okay, well, of course, okay, because you didn't mm-hmm, do a proper mm-hmm, study mm-hmm. to figure out what the event rate was, and mm-hmm. you're going after 19 diggity two. Um, so that's one thing. It'll help you there. Two, I think for some things where, I don't know, some interventions where there's just total uncertainty, it might help you find the place of equipoise, like where, of all the people we're stenting with renal artery stenosis and high blood pressure, and the doctor believes strongly that it really works for the worst actors, and we all doubt it works for the best actors, like if I were to do a randomized trial, like who would I do it in? Mm-hmm. 
but I think your question is really fundamentally, I think, a Bayesian versus frequentist question. Yeah, right. And I guess. And should you borrow yeah, from and should the you borrow? And I guess on this podcast, I've had a lot of people come on, including Frank Harrell, who's a big Bayesian. Mm-hmm. And I've had some frequentists come on. And I guess I would say that my bias is, um, I think both methods are good, but I do think I tend to be a frequentist. And why am I a frequentist? I just, I think that, I think we're still, our, our pretest probability and our prior distributions are still over, are too optimistic in my, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. like when hydroxychloroquine was all the buzz, mm-hmm. somebody on Twitter drew what they thought the prior distribution should be of the probability it works across a range of effect sizes. Mm-hmm. And I saw their distribution and I was like, hmm, that's a nice little lump but let me replace it with a spike. And my spike was like so high on zero. No- yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I put this like world's largest spot, like Mount Kilimanjaro on zero. But, right. yeah. but that, that's not, a, you should think about an example where there really is compelling observational evidence. Like like think about hormone, post, postmenopausal hormone therapy. That's, there was strong prior observational right. evidence, right? If you had drawn your priors, would it have had a, a spike at zero or I guess I think the worry is that people wouldn't have put the spike at zero and they would have been unable to reject the hypothesis that it still offers benefit and we might still be giving it, but it may not be working. Um, because the, the prior way I think was erroneous because NHS as analyzed originally. Okay, yeah. fair enough. But I think you have to weigh that against all the people who were the last people randomized to the less good therapy in every other trial, right? Right. right? Where right. it confirmed the, which must be some people. I mean, I've never really thought about it, but like I've never tried to quantify it, but clearly some people are the last people randomized. And if you'd had a prior, you could have stopped the trial more quickly. Correct. But you know, the other thing about it is the other way people have tried to overcome it is like, as the trial goes on, it skews the randomization ratio. Yeah, yeah, actually, I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, But the one thing that these other guys pointed out at the NCI, uh, Ed Korn and Boris Friedland, is that one of the challenges is if there's some secular time trend that goes on over the course of the study that you're not aware of, True. Right? You're introducing that time bias by you're you're putting more people on the quote unquote winning arm in periods of time where the outcomes are already getting better. So you like, should be able to evaluate, like should be able to deal with that, yeah. right? Can't you deal with that analytically? They, I see the issue. Yes, you see the issue. But I, would I don't. Think I actually don't know if it. you can. Deal, well, I think they argued in their paper that you couldn't deal with it analytically. But I'm sure there's people who have tried to deal with it analytically. I think SARS-CoV-2 is a great example because the yeah, yeah. the case fatality Absolutely. rate dramatically changed between yeah, yeah. March and and so. You know, if you did have sort of a skewed randomization, anything that gets initial uh, an initial benefit will kind of just drag. It'll right, it, right. It, right. Yeah, I see. You I see. see. So that's another challenge in the space. But your point is well taken. That I don't know. I always say that uh, I wrote this paper this last year. Like reliable, cheap, fast, and few. Okay, this is my philosophy. Mm-hmm. So what do we want from like to sort out therapies, whether or not they work? It has to be reliable. So we need like a causal conclusion you can hang your hat on. Cheap. Cheap means like what is the cheapest way to get the answer? Yeah. And it actually turns out that often, I, I, I did some back of the envelope calculation, but usually like if you do an observational study on the same question you do a randomized trial, the sample size is about 15 times as big because you know they debuted it in the health system, yeah, right? right, right, right. So if like, and then I did a little math to say that like if the drug costs more than $8,000 per person, it's actually cheaper to do the randomized study. And if it's less uh, than $800,000 uh-huh, per person, uh-huh. you can do 15 times as many, right, okay. That's interesting. Reliable, okay. cheap, fast. You want the fastest result mm-hmm. and few, as few people exposed to the substandard treatment as right. possible. That's right. So we're on it. We agree on the goal. Yeah. But how it's do you just achieve how do you it? actually get it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So your next your next book, okay. you can like go back historically and say, suppose that we'd had a different philosophy about I wondered when we draw a trial, when we call the trial done. I've Could, had so many such I I mean, okay. It's a great idea. It's hard to do. It's a it's great idea. It's brilliant. 
I really think it's a brilliant question. Um, you're going to need a better writer than me. <laughs> <laughs> you need a bunch of, a bunch of interns and students. Yeah, so. you need, I mean, these are some of the greatest questions, I think. Um, and a related question I often puzzle about is like, what does the counterfactual world look like with and without accelerated approval? Like this Educanum app, yeah. you know, it's in the world with accelerated approval. But you can't, and I, I sometimes was like, oh, could you do a, could you randomize nations to accelerated approval or not? But I was like, well, you can't because drug companies will just go to the markets with the most right. permissive stand. Right. So you really need a counterfactual world in, that doesn't exist to really ask if this, the policy of accelerated approval is actually beneficial. I, I was really shocked. I mean, I read, I read Malignant. I was really shocked. I, and it was, it's always irritating when you I'm read shocked. Malignant? I'm so, because I'm it's, so happy. It's like, it shows that I was naive before, right? When I'm really, really wow. shocked. Um, and you're, you're shocked by the content, not the quality of the writing. Let's be <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> Very much. You're the like, content. Oh my God. I <laughs> thought he was literate. <laughs> but, uh, but like with accelerated people, we can clearly do better. Come I on. Like so. we're not even trying. That's, That's just, how I feel. take stuff off the market when it doesn't work with a post-approval study, get better and faster post-approval studies. This, we, there, there are difficult there are lines where the policy is difficult and figuring out the exact best policy is difficult, but we're not at that line. We're in a, it seems like we're in a space where there's clearly better policy. That's what I say. That's exactly, I say we're so far from the best policy. What are we doing? And, 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 and it smells like we're enriching the shareholders of these companies we, and not doing what's best for people. Go back to Ajkenyamab. So yes. the, the biomarker that they approved for, bio, for that they gave preliminary approval for, um, uh, map based on was this amyloid removal. The paper, the framework that really made that biomarker definitional for disease in the absence of cognitive impairment. And at the time that that framework was released in 2017 slash 2018, we actually said, this is a problem because if you agree with this framework, you could just remove the biomarker and call it cured. Mm. That's a problem. That framework, one of the co-authors was a Biogen um, staff member. Yeah, oh. like a like a not just like a random low part, like a really influential person who's who's pushed through this drug. So the idea that that wasn't part of an overall strategy um, is naive. Yeah, yeah. So Murray Gleamore, you got to go to your meeting. But thank you so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure. I'll give you the last word. Thank you. It's been lots of fun to be here, and uh, look forward to arguing you with you more, maybe in person over Hopefully the coming in person. years. <laughs> Hopefully, right. in, only in person. I only accept my punishment in person. Maria, it's a pleasure to see <laughs> Take you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.